Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Chris Alexander back with us, who's on with me about three years ago. Canadian-based, internationally published writer, editor, composer, filmmaker. He has served as the editor-in-chief of the legendary horror film magazine, Fangoria, is the current editor and co-founder of Full Moon Entertainment's cult film magazine, Delirium. Filmmaker, he has directed such horror films as, as Blood for Arena, Queen of Blood, Girl with a Straight Razor, Space Vampire, and Necropolis Legion. And welcome back, Chris. Looking forward to this. We need some fun tonight. Yes, and, and what is more fun than death, dismemberment, sex, and blood? <laughs> oh, God. Let's do it, George. It's a pleasure and an honor to return. To it's good. Life. How did you get involved in all of this, Chris? Well, it's, you know, I think uh, for all of us, it's a secret handshake, those of us who, who live and die by the sword of horror. I mean, but it, it, it comes from some sort of primordial connection we have to, to this stuff. And, and for me, it was, I remember vividly, the first time I was exposed to to what what I would later learn to be a 1966 movie called The She Beast, starring Barbara Steele, but I didn't know that at the time. I was three years old, and all I saw on a matinee, I think, coming out of Buffalo, New York, a channel I got in Toronto via the Rabbit Ears, was a witch being dunked into the water and screaming every time she emerged. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I couldn't articulate to, to how I felt about what I was seeing. I felt it somewhere deep in my guts. And it terrified me. Um, and from that moment on, I was kind of obsessed with the arcane, the the ugly, the, the monstrous, the freakish, when it came to the arts. Um, and then later on, I saw, I remember when I was four years old, I saw Philip Kaufman's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I remember Donald Sutherland crushing his own uh, a classic uh, replication skull with you know with the fetal heartbeat on the soundtrack. And and again, it just it hits you in a kind of way that bypasses your intellect and it hits you right in the kind of Freudian id before you knew what a Freudian id was. And uh, from that moment on, I kind of made it my life's mission uh, to know and see all I could see and know about the genre. And I'm happy to say I'm somewhat of an aficionado of it today. And I, I literally have made it my life's work. I, I, I feed my family by knowing a lot about horror movies. So... What what are the demographics of horror films? Is it skew younger or are all ages like it? It's you know here's the thing about horror is that what what, what is it? I mean it taps it's it's an entertainment that kind of safely benignly taps into shared anxieties that we all have and that knows no age and knows no nationality knows no demographic. I think I think if we're talking about your generic Friday night scare movie. I mean, this this skews towards teenagers, obviously young people, because when we're young, we're kind of in a bubble. We're sheltered from the fact that everything is finite and that we're going to die. And when we discover these kind of movies, it's like discovering rock and roll. It's something that mom and dad don't want you to know, don't want you to see. And there's a little element of rebellion there. And it is tied in, obviously, with the another base element, uh, sex. So we're, we kind of discover this stuff very young. And I think as we age, what scares us changes. And I, I think I'd be willing to bet there's a lot of horror fans out there that don't even know that they're horror fans. They're responding differently to different kinds of entertainments that do the exact same thing that you know Friday the 13th does to an 18-year-old on, on a date on a Friday night. What is it about horror films, Chris, that people enjoy getting the living daylight scared out of them? Well, that's, again, that's it's it's a complex question. But I think, as I mentioned, at the, at the end of the day, 
you know, we're all on the same path. And uh, unfortunately, it, that path has an end. And I think society does a great job in trying to make us forget that we're going to die. And so we feel when we really start to think about it and we stare off into the cosmos and we're like, yikes, what's out there? I mean, that's why people listen to this show. It's the same reason. Yeah. We want to know what's beyond the pale, what's beyond the door. And what horror films do in a very kind of, again, safely packaged, benign way is to give us a sense of kind of control over mortality. We can leave that darkened theater after seeing the most explicit atrocities after having our spines shaken. And when the lights come up, we're alive. And there's a sense of empowerment and survival that we've we've come through this stuff. And if we can come through that, then maybe we can come through anything, you know. So there is that kind of attraction to to mastering the unknown. And I think it's been with us since cavemen could scribble on walls and, and scare the little kids around the campfires. My father used to bring me to see Japanese-made horror films after World War II, of course, uh, when the Japanese were nuked uh, during World War II. After the war, they came up with, uh, you know, Godzilla, the Mysterians, you know, space movies, and all these other strange movies. And, and I think the nuclear bombing had a effect on the Japanese filmmakers, didn't it? Well, Godzilla is. I mean, that's explicitly, if you, especially if you watch the, um, you know, Godzilla is actually the, the real, the, the Americans called him Godzilla. He's a mutation, but, right? Yeah, but his name is Gojira. I mean, that's the Japanese movie, Gojira, which means I think it translates directly to terrible whale, which is very strange because that ain't no whale. But anyways, he's woken up by nuclear testing. I mean, that's that's what wakes Godzilla up. And so he he was a direct response to, to bombings in Hiroshima. I mean, that's that's what Godzilla is, uh, and obviously hugely popular, and gave, as you say, gave birth to an entire wave of of freakish Japanese mutant radiated monster movies. What uh, since you've been uh, looking at horror films and things like that, what is your opinion, Chris, on Hollywood over the years? How have they made this transition with horror films? Hollywood has been, I mean, we, Hollywood has obviously watered down a, a lot of, you know, horror comes from the underground, it comes from the independent world, it comes from the fringe. Yes. And anytime it, it locks, it, there's any moderate success in the mainstream, every suit and his brother is going to try and jump on that, and try to package it uh, to the masses. And so we can, we can be cynical and break, curl our lip a little bit as to what Hollywood does to to horror films but i mean this, there's no crime in making things popular and getting you know sugarcoating the pill to get it out there and hook the hook a new audience you know when i was a kid i mean you, you were you ate what was served and what we got was whatever was playing in the theaters and that was okay you know and if we liked it then we would then on friday nights or saturday nights get our friends together and make the pilgrimage to the video stores and start going a little deeper and darker to find the stuff that wasn't easily available. And it becomes almost like, you know, I used to say when we were kids, we were like the Indiana Jones of horror. And then we, we, would, we would do everything we could to explore and, and search for the craziest stuff. And, and it's like chasing the dragon. You know, here I am still in my mid-40s, charitably, actually, I'm upper 40s, I'm in the dark side of 40s, <laughs> but still doing the exact same thing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to search and quest everywhere I can look to find some new kind of kick when it comes to this stuff. 
What is your definition, Chris, of horror? What's scary to one person may be a comedy to somebody else. Well, agreed. I mean, it, but again, that comes to, to what's subjective, what, what our life experiences. None of us have the same life experiences, and, and none of us have the, the same triggers, the same buttons that, that are pushed. So, you know, that's the eternal question. Uh, what's the scariest horror movie ever made, Chris? I'm like, I'll tell you what the scariest is for me, but it's not going to be the same for you. I can tell you what some of the best horror films aesthetically ever made are. But as far as scary goes, that is a completely um, personal question. So to me, just the very definition of the term horror, um, you know, it's a marketing term invented by publicists to easily package a film. Okay, it's on one level. But it's just really just about dread about tapping into something that's, you know, you don't want to look, you don't want to see it. It's hard, it hurts, but you do. It's, it's maybe a bit of self-flagellation there, too. I know at this level in my life, I can't watch films where children are put in jeopardy because I'm a father. I agree. I'm, I'm the same way. And, you know, but that wasn't the case when I was necessarily a, a younger guy. That kind of just went right over my head. But now I can't because it hits too close to home. Um, so it was whatever triggers us, whatever kind of personal lines in the sand we have, um, our definitions of horror are in flux. Except I didn't like Chucky, that little kid. Uh, Chucky the doll. I mean, hey, hey yeah. Chucky's great. Now, listen, I, we can really talk about <laughs> horror franchises. Chucky's one of the few ones that actually I think is pretty good and cheeky because it's been run by the same filmmaker almost from day one, a guy named Don Mancini. But, I mean, I love evil dolls. I mean, my love of evil dolls goes back to watching Twilight Zone reruns with my dad and and the episode, The Dummy, you know, with uh, Cliff Robertson, where his ventriloquist dummy comes to life. I mean, that's, that still gives me a goose every time. Or Magic with Anthony Hopkins and Anne Margaret. I mean, uh, evil dolls are, <laughs> they've been with us since day one, and they're scary. The Dead of Night, which is the first anthology film from the 40s, has an evil ventriloquist uh, doll. I mean, dolls are creepy. I mean, let's, let's oh, they are. right out there. There's a and doll they, down in Florida, called a real one, called Robert the Haunted Doll. Are you familiar at all with him? I've heard of Rob. Oh, yes, of course I've heard of Robert he, the Haunted he's, Doll. He's a doll dressed up in a little Navy outfit, and uh, he's hermetically sealed in a glass case right now. But people freak out when they see this thing. and uh, well, I, It's the same reason I freaked out when I was a kid. I, I, my dad took me to... Uh, you know, Madame Tussauds, and and even before we got to the Chamber of Horrors, I was my I was quaking in my boots because oh, it's yeah, eerie. Yeah. It's like looking at something that's that's it's uncanny. It's human, but it's not. It's it's recognizable, but it's alien, uh, and it's like almost like this embalmed thing in front of you. And that's how we respond to those kind of like lifelike dolls. I mean, they're just they're just eerie. Are horror films generally cheaper to make, and they're pr- pretty profitable? Yeah, I mean that's that's that's. That's true, because, you know, I mean, I taught film history for, for many years and, and being a scholar of this stuff and, and knowing historically that, again, what it, it doesn't cost much to throw buckets of blood at the screen. It doesn't cost much to, you know, sex is a part of, of, of the genre because, you know, the sex and death, the two most important, uh, you know, benchmarks of, of the living condition. And horror movies exploit that. So they don't really cost much to deliver the goods. They're not based necessarily on star systems. So Tom Cruise doesn't need to open a horror movie to make it successful. Um, so they generally are fairly historically economical to produce. Absolutely. I mean, look at films like The Blair Witch Project, which literally cost next to nothing. That's true. It was a, a, a landmark film that kind of in, invented an entire subgenre of what they call found footage entertainment. 
and and really cost nothing. Um, and you know, every major movie from Eraserhead on on back, I mean, was the Saw franchise. Those movies were very cheap to produce and always earned at least triple their their budgets um, because you don't need big stars; you just need shocks. And those are fairly if, uh, under the uh, you know the the steerage of a of a qualified director and producer. I mean, you can you can deliver those economically without a lot of money. What's the creepy one where the babysitter answers the phone and the guy's in the house? Well, there's a bunch of those. Uh, he knows you're alone or don't answer the phone. I, I know or, what uh, you did last summer or something like uh, that. There's always something along those lines, but there's there's several of, of those. It also dates back to Black Christmas, which is a 1975 Canadian horror film shot here in my hometown of Toronto, directed by the late, great Bob Clark. Uh-huh. The calls are, you know, there's this this evil murderer calling these women in the sorority house, and no one can locate the call until at the very end you find out the call has been coming from the attic the entire time. The killer's been up there. I mean, that's just, even just saying that still, like, gives you the goose flesh. Well, and that there was a real lifetime story. I think the guy was Richard Speck out of oh, Chicago. Yeah. I think he broke into a sorority and killed a whole bunch of uh, girls. Yeah, and the Richard Speck killing obviously kind of gave birth to to that subgenre of, uh, mm-hmm. of young newborn women in distress. Uh, absolutely, there's another like a killer, not a killer, but another creepy guy hiding in the in the attic movie. I got to throw out there because not a lot of people know about it. But if you can find it, it's worth it. With Scott Jacoby, it's a TV movie from 1975 or four. I want to say it's called Bad Ronald. So if you get a chance, people, do your homework. Try to find Bad Ronald. It's very very creepy. There was actually a real story of a guy who lived in the attic above a family in their house, and he lived there for about two or three years. And he he, he stayed in the attic. Apparently, they never went up there. And, you know, he would stay up there, and then when they were either asleep or they were all gone out of the house, he'd sneak down and, you know, do what he had to do. But he lived up there in the attic for about three years before they caught the guy. This is a terrifying, terrifying notion. I mean, again, this is horror 101. This is the blueprint. This is the, you know, what goes bump in the night. No, yeah. it's just the house settling. No, it's not. It's a dude in the attic. I mean, this is, this is, <laughs> and it's real. Very scary. Very real. I mean, very scary. Yeah. I mean, I don't like clowns, for example. They freak me out. I, they always have since I was a kid. I never liked them. I hated the clown that would, you know, blow up balloons and bend them and stuff like that. And uh, I think when I saw Stephen King's It... That uh, pu- that pushes me over the edge, but I don't, I don't for for years I don't like clowns. And then that serial killer John Wayne Gacy would dress up as a clown to capture people, and uh, you know that just added more to it that I don't like clowns. Clowns, but I mean you're not alone, George. I mean clowns. It's one of the uh, and it, it absolutely you mentioned Stephen King's It, both the, the original Tommy Lee Wallace Tim Curry miniseries from the early '90s, and then obviously the Juggernaut double shot remake that came out recently um you know big big horror business but to me scary clowns with fangs and teeth and bat wings and everything else they're not so scary it's as you say it's that innocuous circus clown the party clown 
the guy that's supposed to be cuddly and sweet, and yet he's just dripping grease paint with that painted on smile. Yeah, I mean, that's the guy that that sends shivers down my spine too. And that yeah, look so with I'm, those I'm eyes. I'm with circus with circus movies and circus culture, primarily because I find it uh, very eerie and horrific when it comes to the, the clown component. Are there some Hollywood writers who have just made a legend being writers for uh, horror films? Yeah, I mean, writers, absolutely. I think my favorite my favorite book, and it's a novella of all time, is, is called I Am Legend by a guy named Richard Matheson, who I'm lucky enough to have known Richard before he passed. But, um, you know, there's a handful of those great fantasy writers, uh, and they all knew each other. You know, Ray Bradbury, Charles Beaumont, mm-hmm. Richard Matheson being, being one of them. But I Am Legend is, is still the greatest story, and I, I read it once a year at least. Uh, and a timely one at that, about a plague of vampirism that, that encompasses the earth, and there's one man left who becomes like obsessed with his mission, because he has nothing else to do in his life, than uh, hunt them during the day, and then at night board up his house with garlic and mirrors as they come crawling and scratching to drink his blood. It's, it's just a magnificent, terrifying story, and an intelligent one. But Matheson made his name. I mean, he wrote key episodes of The Twilight Zone, and made his name in, in horror and then hooked up with um, American International Pictures and Roger Corman and wrote uh, those magnificent, a big a bulk of those magnificent Edgar Allan Poe horror films um, written or directed or starring Vincent Price in the early 60s. And then later on moved on to uh, television with uh, Dan Curtis, who created Dark Shadows for a series of... Oh, yeah, I remember that. My sister used to run home and watch that all the time, every day. When I was a kid, my great-grandmother introduced me to it in reruns on ABC. That was our bonding thing. I didn't go to kindergarten. I went to Granny's house to watch Dark Shadows, and that was a big deal, too, for me. But but Matheson is, to me, I mean, the the greatest when it comes to... uh, creating works, a writer for novels, a writer of, of stories, but also found his footing, um, um, really, writing for film and television. And, uh, you know, get out there and discover the work of Matheson if you haven't already. And the Freddy Krueger uh, episodes are pretty good, too, aren't they? You know, George, i got to be honest with you. I mean, I, I respect the Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I respect its impact and its legacy on the genre. But I'm not particularly a fan of, of those films. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because maybe it's, uh, you know, your perspective on the ride depends on when you I mean, they the did well at the box office, didn't they? Well, that, that's true. But a box office barometer is no, you know, it's no barometer of, of how scary a movie is. When I was a kid, those movies were incredibly popular. And uh, I was getting to a point where, I, again, I was starting to become that Indiana Jones, and I was searching a little more. And there just wasn't anything scary about this, you know, because Freddy, in the first one, you know, he's a child killer. He kills children. Yeah, and I agree with it. I don't like that. It's not particularly something you want to see on a uh, on a lunchbox, and that's what where what happened to Freddie. He was big dude was everywhere. There was rock videos. I mean, that he was he was on MTV. He was that he was ubiquitous. He was an eyesore. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at one a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.